this is your host, Aram Mukmuf, and you're listening to another Product Innovation Show episode. Uh, every week, as you know, the guests that I have on our, um, on our show talk about their stories and wisdom on how to ship a great product. Uh, on the show with me today, I have Miraj Imani, who's been delivering market-leading solutions to Fortune 500 companies um, and currently works as the Director of Product Management at Fix, one of the leading uh, scale-ups. Uh, Miraj, pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining. Awesome. Thank you for having me here. It's good to be here. Awesome. Uh, so the first question I have is about your you know, breadth of experience. So like I know you've worked in products in AI, B2B, mobile, SaaS. So you're quite a, quite a generalist, uh, you know. Um, was this a conscious career choice that you had? I think it was it was unconscious at first. I was uh, initially when I went to school, uh, I, I was studying engineering. I was doing electrical and computer engineering. Uh, I come from a long line of engineers in my family, so it's kind of just uh, it was an option already decided at some point. And then when I was in school, I kind of realized uh, you know I'm learning a lot, but about a very specific set of things. Mm-hmm. And at that point, uh, after a couple of years, I switched over to business where uh, we have one of those devils which switched from engineering to business. But uh, I really wanted to learn uh, about a lot of different things. So I think what happened was maybe out of necessity, I kind of got into product management, stumbled into product management at first and just ended up raising my hand whenever some project would pop up. Hey, who can help with this? Like, hey, I can, I can do it. Um, on paper, probably unqualified for most of them. Um, but yeah, you know, ended up doing them over the years. And I think it was a few years in, two, three years in, that I started seeing the results. I'm like, okay, you know, there's a lot of benefits to this. Uh, from one side, I could really think about risk management of a project uh, because I'd done the mobile side, I'd done the API side, I'd done the platform side, I'd done the UX side. Uh, so I could really think about a broad set of things that have, could have applied to something that we're launching. But more importantly, what was what really worked for me was uh, trying to think about things in a in a way that wasn't constrained to a box per se. The box that being the, uh, what I owned as a product manager. Uh, now that that's my journey. That's uh, what I went through based on personality, upbringing, and all of that, uh, and requirements of the job. Um, I firmly believe everybody, every PM that I meet goes through their journey. And uh, what I went through is not necessarily uh, the right thing for everybody. And uh, just out of curiosity, from these kind of different spectrums of product uh, creation that you've, you've, you've gone through, which one do you feel like you, you learned the most or there was uh, the most to learn? The most different one was applied AI, uh, because that has a set of, that can be a very expensive, um, a lot of companies fail at it and, uh, B there's a kind of very, uh, defined set of things that you need to go through. It's like, how are you going to acquire your data? What's your data normalization like? Um, and the third thing with the people I was working with were all PhDs, very smart, much smarter than I am. Uh, so that was very different. And, um, in a sense that I also had to try to figure out, cause again, that's one of the things I initially stumbled into. I had to figure out, all right, what can I bring to this, uh, equation? Um, 
And I kind of realized, hey, it's, uh, yeah, if you set aside all of those things, we're still trying to solve a problem here. And what I can bring to the table is, and that's like the context from the, still context from the industry, from uh, user requirements, the maturity of the customers that they need to be in, and also how would we prove out the hypothesis that uh, the applied AI or the AI team is looking to prove out. So in a, in a sort of market space. Um, so that, that comes to mind as a, as a very different set of steps that I had to go through that I wasn't necessarily familiar with before. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, wanted to ask you about your experience uh, from, um, or I know you worked in B2B. Uh, let me know if you also worked in, in B2C as well. I think you did, right? I did, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, a couple of years back, um, had a bit of a fear of missing out kind of a thing. A few of my friends went out to a lot of well-known B2C companies, and uh, I'd never done B2C. They were telling me all these stories about, hey, look, look at this uh, data science that we're doing on uh, user behavior and all of that. I'm like, I, I want to I be able to do that. Um, so I did a bit of a pivot in my career, joined a B2C company in Toronto, worked with excellent people, uh, and ended up learning quite a set of few things that I really didn't have exposure on when I was doing B2B. So for context, I was doing B2B SaaS product management for eight or uh, eight or so years before mm -hmm. I joined that B2C. So I was used to you have a user persona, you have a buyer persona, and we had like successful companies, but you're talking like thousands of weekly active users. Yeah. And I joined an environment which had something like uh, hundreds of thousands of weekly active users, uh, where your buyer is your customer, it's the same person. Uh, so there was a, a few good lessons there that I'm, that I'm happy to talk about, uh, to talk about to the listeners and to you. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, I, I... I always like B2C because as you said, your, um, your end user is your paying customer. <laughs> so very easy to reach them, very easy to like get feedback from them. Whereas through B2B, your end user that's actually using it, you know, you might not be able to, you know, touch. Right. Um, so can you share with us some of your lessons from B2C that you learned and that you were able to apply to your B2B, ex um, uh, products? Yeah, for sure. So. Uh, when I was, like I mentioned, when I was in B2B, you know, we're talking a few thousand weekly active users, uh, trying to convince the buyer persona and then also seeing, hey, the, helping out the user persona. So there's like certain set of things when it came to validation that, hey, you go through a particular set of things that you do. You set up some interviews, you talk to 10, 20 customers when you want to do validation, maybe you do some group sessions and so on. Um, that was not going to work because it just wasn't going to scale for me. Because uh, uh, even if I got a thousand customers in, that was still a fraction of a fraction of uh, the people that were using our application. So I had to learn a set of new validation and de-risking uh, tools that uh, a lot of B2C people had already in their toolbox. Um, so how do you, for example, run a good AB experiment? How do you do a good painted door experiment. What do you need to do in order to do like a multivariable experiment? And with it, what's an experimentation framework? How do you divide up the your experiment groups? Um, none of this stuff I, I'd really been exposed to from a B2B side because 
um, you know, I was working in scale-ups. Scale-ups is what I really enjoy working for, but you just don't get that kind of a user base. Uh, but they have been extremely helpful uh, in bringing it to B2B because now I, uh, it's, we're implementing them at Fix right now. We do experiments all the time. And the second thing that was really valuable was uh, in B2B, you kind of think about how am I going to launch the next big thing? I'm going to launch this great new thing. It's going to change the market. Everybody's going to love it. We're all going to be millionaires. I think a lot of people are resonating. You know, this is resonating for them. But with B2C, when you have like an established product, you're looking at aggregating half a percentage improvement here, a percentage there, 2% there. And in six months, all of a sudden you realize, okay, you know what? We are 50% better across the board. And mm -hmm. that is a, a very valuable thing. Um, so that's, that's another thing that I brought with me to the B2B world, uh, which especially became helpful uh, when defining like a product-led growth strategy and planning around it and what is it that we would be doing. Oh, very interesting. Um, maybe for the audience, can you uh, explain what a painted door is? Oh yeah, a painted door experiment is when you don't have something built, you're sort of wondering if it's going to impact a particular um, a particular behavioral outcome. And so you just put a link to it or a button to it or a call to action to it. And what that does is introduces the user to, hey, we have this, or can we talk to you about this? Or, um, or is that something that you're interested in? Uh, it's important to have tracking for it. It's important to make sure that uh, the placement that you're putting it in uh, is the right placement because you uh, may not just, uh, it, it, it's important to make sure that basically those factors help you ensure you're, you, you're getting credible results at the end of the day. And that's the core and the foundation of any sort of experimentation that you might be doing. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you mentioned product like growth. Let's, let's talk about that. Um, I know you're currently spearheading it at fix. Um, and I believe you're trying to go up market, but kind of before we get there, why do you think so many people are trying, why do you think so many people are getting product-led growth wrong? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, before I get in deeper, I work with, uh, my team is amazing at Fix. Uh, we have great PMs uh, that work on product-led growth and help other PMs to make sure their products are better. Um, but to your question specifically, uh, yeah, product-led growth is one of those buzzwords right now. Uh, everybody's interested in it. It was kind of, it was applied AI like six or seven years ago. So a lot of people went both feet in without really knowing, hey, what's going on? And uh, it, they just knew that if you want to have exponential growth, you're going to need product-led growth. So um, I'm going to sort of list out a few things that people get wrong in what I think is a priority order, at least. Um, first off, the buying behavior. Uh, if your users are not, if your target market, just talking from a B2B perspective, your target market is not buying software in a freemium trial perspective, it doesn't matter. You can get all the other things that I'm going to talk about right, and you're still not going to get it because that's just not where your users are shopping. You're putting up your product for sale in some mall that nobody's going to basically. So. Uh, that's the first thing is really trying to understand the buying behavior of your users or of your target market. The second thing I notice a lot of people get wrong are the goals and business objectives. It's like, why are we even 
doing this. Um, defining what that is and having the ability to measure it is going to be critical for the success of this project or this initiative that you've, uh, that any company takes on. Um, I, I've seen a lot of examples of why are you doing product like growth? Oh, we're trying to get more users. It's like, okay, so is that your metrics? Like, oh, no, actually, you know, we don't really know what it is that we're tracking. Um, the third thing, and this is very prevalent if uh, these are the last two things are very prevalent if your company hasn't started with product-led growth in mind and your product isn't necessarily set up for it. It's a big culture change because a lot of what product-led growth is going to need to do impacts people whose job it is to do those things in the company today. So, uh, for example, you have a marketing department that's in charge of customer communication and you're a product-led growth product manager, you're a growth product manager, for instance, and you want to uh, play around with some of those, with the timing, with the placement, with the content and so on. And you'll find out, oh my God, I'm, they have their own roadmap, they have their own priorities, how am I going to consolidate that? So this is a culture change and this is an org-wide initiative that really needs to be, uh, needs to be uh, accounted for at the beginning. And finally, it's typically not quick. This is not going to be something that you're like, okay, we just turned it on. We're good to go. We're done. Uh, to do it right, you're going to be, as an organization, you're going to be tracking data for a while. You're going to be trying to create baselines for some time. Uh, you're building the muscle during that time period. Uh, you might have some wins. Hopefully you get some quick wins under your belt as well and prove out that, hey, as a concept, it can work. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't expect, uh, if I'm, if I'm setting expectations, I would definitely try to set that, Hey, don't expect this to be changing the world within six months. This is a journey that we're going through. Interesting. Um, from your perspective, I mean, in a product led growth organization, how should mark, who should marketing report to? That's a great question. Uh, Product marketing, I think, should be part of report to chief product officer. That, I think, uh, I've worked in environments where uh, product marketing rolled into uh, chief marketing officer and product mat uh, and organizations with product marketing rolled into chief product officer. I found more success in the second uh, because our goals are aligned. Um, that's actually the main thing. Our goals are aligned and we can embed product marketing much earlier in our conversations and really do like a one-two punch of product strategy and product execution together. Uh, yeah, I can't stress enough how valuable I found uh, partnership with product marketing over the years. Uh, any successful product launch that, it's, that I have in my portfolio has been, uh, has had a big part. Uh, product marketing has played a very big part in it and I'm thankful to all the ones that I've worked with. No, I, I couldn't agree with more. It's, I think it's sometimes I get into, you know, arguments with people about that, like product marketing should report to the CPO. <laughs> it's it's yeah, the most yeah. aligned approach, right? Uh, yeah, so, absolutely. So, so tell me, I mean, with, um, at fix, how are you approaching, um, a PLG? Um, hmm. you know, you said, you know, sometimes it could be slow. It takes time. What were some of your, you know, growth pains that, that, that you had? Yeah. I, uh, for us, we, we are in our second year of uh, the product-led growth initiative, and it started out as somewhat of a, a startup within the company. Uh, 
so kind of scrappy, trying out a bunch of things. Uh, but luckily, the things that we had going for us was uh, the first two things, which were, hey, we had, uh, we knew our buyers uh, buy like this in the market. And we had a very particular goal for it, which was reducing cost of acquisition, customer cost, cost of customer acquisition in a very t particular uh, market segment. So we had these two going for us. What we didn't have uh, a good enough uh, handle on was means to measure user behavior. Um, so that was kind of a challenge for us. We had some data lying in different places, probably 80% of people listening, this is resonating with them, where data is just never available enough for you. Um, and that was, uh, that was a challenge, which this actually ended up helping because as part of this initiative, we started consolidating some of that data, bringing it under the same umbrella. So for the first year, uh, a lot of our focus was that and setting baseline for our metrics. Uh, we use, we don't use anything crazy. We use the standard pirate metrics around acquisition, activation, and so on. Uh, but creating baseline around, the, uh, around them was not that easy. But really what happened in the last few months, uh, we have those benchmarks now. So we know uh, what are we doing, where are we doing well in, and where do we need, where, where do we have opportunities? And we also have uh, forecasting on individual ones. So we know this moving this particular dial is the most worthwhile thing for us. Um, and that's what we've been focusing on this year is really getting out of that startup phase, uh, being scrappy mm -hmm. and really being deliberate with what we do and the things that we focus on. Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, I'm going to shift gears now outside of PLG. I want to ask you uh, with your experience and your background, to this day, what do you feel product directors or PMs uh, do commonly these days that won't get them a great product? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about product directors first. Um, something that I notice is a challenge for product directors um, is the processes that they're implementing uh, are not set up necessarily to get to the organizational objectives. Uh, a lot of product directors that I've uh, worked with, greatest of intentions, they're used to a very particular set of processes that they implement. Like this is how we're gonna do discovery, this is our discovery framework, this is how we're gonna do solutioning, this is our go-to-market approach and so on. And uh, companies at different stages need different things prioritized, uh, different, if you're rewriting your platform in a new architecture, that is a very different set of processes prioritization than uh, if you're mature product and you're just launching, you're sort of uh, going through this aggregated growth basically. Um, so I think uh, my recommendation to the product leaders who are handling processes and so on is really take a step back and see what problems are the processes that they've implemented solving? And are they aligned with the corporate objectives, the business objectives that the product is supposed to get to? Is it gonna get you to that vision in a time frame, and with the quality that it needs to? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, I think there are some surprises there. A lot of people will look into it and like, okay, yeah, maybe we're not doing that. We weren't doing that either. I, I will say like full transparency, we changed a lot of processes recently um, because we noticed, yeah, you know how we were doing things. It's just not going to get us to where we need to go in the time frame that's needed. And I'm sure we're going to face that again. 
uh, in a few months, we're going to be in a different world uh, where we're going to need to do some of our products need to go through, through a slightly different process. Um, so I think this is always evolving and, uh, and uh, should always be looked at. It's not like done and forgotten about. From a PM perspective, uh, my recommendation to all the PMs is to all think about the success metrics right at the beginning. You're planning to build something. How are you going to measure it? What does success even look like? I can't tell you how many times um, I failed at this personally. You know, I, early on in my career, we built this big thing. And we're like, okay, how are we going to measure success? Like, oh my God, it's going to be like two sprints now to put in like trackers for everything. So it's just a lot easier to do it. And I've also had scenarios where as we're defining the success metrics, we realized this is just not even worth pursuing because in order to reach the what would be constituted as successful for a product, it may not be attainable at all, uh, our approach or the product, the problem that we're solving for itself. So always start with these metrics earlier on. Uh, it, it will pay dividends down the road. So what I'm hearing, I think, with product directors is align product goals to the organization. That's a big takeaway. And then for PMs, it's really having success metrics early on. Yeah, yeah. This it's. I mean, there's a lot we could just. No, no, those, those are great. I, talk I about could. This. No, no, you nailed it. I think those are the two things that I most commonly see is missed as well. And um, sometimes it's hard, I think, to like have the foresight in order to see like what am I doing this for? Or, like, what's like the goalpost or what what's like, success look like? It's just it's a tough challenge for some people. Um, so yeah, thanks for answering yeah. that. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I think it's people get start getting attached to the solution that they're thinking exactly. about. And uh, you kind of lose sight of the problem that you're solving for. So be attached to the problem, not the solution. Perfect, yeah. A um, couple more questions before we get into the fireside questions, which I always like ending with. Um, so depending on the size of your organization, like we sometimes kind of even use this analogy as well but a lot of smaller startups some of their pms you know could operate as like a, a, a ceo right or like a general manager right that kind of concept um want to ask you where do you think this myth comes from and you know who pms really are <laughs> yeah it's like uh it's a great it's a great phrase right like pms are ceos you know it's like a, it's almost become like a proverb like uh hey your customer is always right and no, we know that's not the case as PMs. It's like seldom the case. I've also heard uh, some PMs say, hey, with great responsibility comes no power, which I think is uh, really the product management life at whatever level you're operating in. Um, yeah, the history of it, it came from uh, came from this American businessman, uh, ben, ben Horowitz, I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's about 20 years old. It was in some memo, a good product manager, bad product manager. And I think really the objectives of it are misunderstood or being taken out of context, uh, which is was around responsibility. It's like, hey, you have a lot of responsibility. Uh, but where I think it's really gone to the wayside is I think it's given people a lot of uh, misunderstandings. I think a lot of uh, people got into product management for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think it attracted a the wrong people to the product management as a, as a career choice as well. If the most successful product managers in a long period of time that I know have always been 
uh, collaborative, uh, extremely humble, good storytellers, and have empathy. Um, and if you're coming in to product management with the expectation that hey, you're going to just boss people around, <laughs> yeah, you might be successful short term, but long term, I haven't met anybody. And I just feel like that that uh, that term just got uh, people thinking the wrong way. They took the wrong aspect of it rather than, hey, no, you just have a lot of responsibility around all aspects of product management, uh, but no, no powers, no powers, unfortunately. That's true. Um... I think 20 years ago, I think, um, oh man, I think it was a, a, a video I saw of Steve Jobs talking about a role of a product manager when it was like being defined early on. And I think, you know, later on, I think Ben Horowitz, you know, put that in like in a memo as well. And um, I think it was like a very different time in terms of like what a product man, it was like this new thing, like everybody's like, woo, what's, what's this? <laughs> so they came up with this term and they made it as like this like all encapsulating type of role. Uh, I still feel like in some organizations, they don't know what a product manager is supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like a catch all, you know, in an occasion. So it's, it's funny. I, you know, I appreciate your, your point of view on that. Um, <laughs> last, last question, Mirage on, on, on this, uh, before we go to the fireside is you worked on a lot of products, uh, different exposure, different things. What was your, worst ever product feature you had to deal with like why was it bad why did it fail and how would you do it differently uh yeah i mean i've worked on a lot of sort of challenging for different reasons products but um the ones that kind of immediately come to mind are those unexpected features you know things that are not meant to be really a feature it's like a, a bug really uh, but it's now has broad adoption throughout your product. Um, and it hampers, you know, it impacts how you actually go and upgrade. Um, now they uh, companies who are scale ups, uh, which I have a lot of experience in, they have this all the time because when you're a startup, your focus is on, hey, I'm going to, uh, how do I keep the lights on? Uh, how do I make more sales? Okay. Let's build this one thing for that one customer and uh, build it in a short amount of time. So you, I understand you just don't get to think about the long-term ramifications of it. Um, so my how I would do them differently, it's hard to say uh, because I wasn't that person making that decision at that time. But I, I would recommend you know something that uh, if you have any uh, QA professionals listening to this, I would recommend documenting these at least. If I'm making that decision, uh, if I'm making some assumptions, if I've made some decisions, uh, all of, uh, in all of the product discovery that we do at fix questions and assumptions has a place pretty much near the top. It's like, these are the assumptions we're making. These are the decisions we made from them. So at least you can go back. If you're unable to make the right decision for whatever organizational need of that day, uh, future people who are looking at it and trying to sort of solve for it uh, can go back and see, hey, why were some of these decisions made? Uh, this is like a low cost way of um, at least helping with some future proofing down the road. But yeah, it's, it's really hard to say uh, how I would do them differently because I uh, just wasn't there and don't know what they were experiencing. Yeah, I think documentation is uh, key, as you said. Um, there's sometimes not enough of like a... Uh, 
uh what's the what's the word i'm looking for like when d- um write-ups or you know documentation basically around like where did you get this decision how did you get it what was like the rationale there's no like source of truth at times around like mm. where do things come from and i feel like sometimes people just skip that because they're like oh it's, it takes too much time to write this stuff it's like the same mm. thing with like sales reps who hate doing the administration side of like logging yeah. stuff into salesforce and into yeah. uh you know hubspot because like oh i want to do sales or it's like a product yeah. manager i want to do product i want to write stuff documentation but it's so key so key yeah and to your point like if you have that source of truth that could be a living document that's what we try to do is you're going to have to do some of the work anyway and you're going to be documenting it in some tickets anyway why not have one source of truth where you put that in and over time you just build to it build on top of it and uh, then you're good you know you just don't have to think about it again yeah and what do you where do you use what do you use is it just google docs is it atlassian jira confluence yeah confluence and jira we uh, we use those extensively yeah okay cool cool all right uh ready for some fireside questions so the format is question one to two sentence answers all right okay all right first question is what should people start doing tomorrow to ship better product there's uh, there's a thought experiment I recommend to people. Um, it's not immediately going to get to a good product, but over time it will. Which is when you're deciding on the scope, do a what's the best that could happen and what's the worst that could happen. You create these bookends. Uh, oftentimes you might find that hey, if you get something wrong, you're totally fine with the worst that could happen, mm-hmm. or if you get it all right the best thing that could happen is not good enough. Uh, oftentimes it's built somewhere in the middle, but it's a, it's a great way to get some consensus, especially in bigger groups when, uh, about what is it to build and how much of it that needs to be built. Okay. Awesome. Uh, what are, what aspects of product development money can't fix? Uh, man, we talked about empathy already. <laughs> I can pay people way more and doesn't make them any more empathetic. Um, and something else that a lot of companies do, a lot of big companies do, is they fully outsource their product strategy. Goes to some consulting firm that doesn't build software, um, has had some people working there that haven't built software in like 20, 30 years. Uh, your product strategy can benefit from money being thrown at it uh, from like uh, some research, but not all of it. Um, and so many companies do that. Uh, and every time it's a little piece of me just dies. <laughs> just kind of dies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think a great story I remember reading was Hertz, and I love hampering on this one because Hertz hired Accenture, I think it was, mm-hmm. to redo their uh, product development, um, like new web apps, mobile apps. And I think they spent $30 million and they got zero at the end of the day. Oh my god! Like there was wow. no result at the end of the day. They just kept like buying time and stuff like that. And Hertz ended up suing them for that amount. Wow. Um, and I just have a problem generally with big consulting agencies because you don't really know who's doing the work. They lack that empathy because it's typically yeah. people in the back office or whoever that you never speak to. Yeah. Um, and so they don't care. <laughs> it's almost like car rental is not their business. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, all right, next question is, would 
Would you at any point ask users what they want you to build and when not to do that? Uh, it's, you know, it's, um, I often ask it if I know that it's not going to set expectations. That, um, just because I, sometimes I'm just curious where they would expect the solution to mm. live. Not that that's what will be built. Um, a lot of the products that uh, my team and I are involved with are fall under regulatory requirements. So our, a lot of our users are actually subject matter experts in those requirements. Um, now that doesn't mean that, hey, we're gonna exactly build it how they are asking for, but we rely heavily on some of their expertise and some other expertise to help us understand at least the boundaries and the sets of requirements that we need to, uh, that we need to abide by. Um, but yeah, I sometimes just ask him, like, hey, where do you think this would be? Where do you expect it to be? Or um, how would you expect it to work? Just to sort of see um, their perspective on their expectations. Okay. All right. Um, and another, you know, question is, uh, at what point can you throw money at a product problem? Money at a product problem if the, it's not a, you don't, if the knowledge having it in house won't matter, uh, great candidate to throw some money at it. If it's a one-off in, integrating with some other company, uh, company's product, throw some money at it. Um, or if it's a distraction, potential distraction to the roadmap and services can help with it. Mm. Uh, that's another way of just throwing some money at it and forgetting about it and uh, solving a problem basically. Okay, great. And what do you believe that other people think is insane? Oh, man. Um, so uh, I believe that streamlining user experience is not always right. Um, I'll, I'll, it's okay if I explain it a little yeah, bit? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so I, uh, if some of your listeners are like me, their physician uses um like digital notes basically and they'd be going over them and some other physician might have some notes added there or the nurse or some other practitioner and typically just because i'm somewhat familiar with this there's a note approval that needs to happen um and just imagine you're sitting at you know with your physician and they're going to go through the notes they don't look at anything just press approve well you know approve is on top of the screen Typically, you know, you've removed the friction of them having to scroll and acknowledge that they've read all of it, uh, but it's completely missed the point of, uh, of the objective of the, the problem that that was really meant to solve. The problem that was meant to solve is make it easier, put it in one place, but you still want the user to read it. Mm -hmm. um, you still want the user to acknowledge that they've read it um, and streamlining that process, I think, has just completely missed the point on that one. I think also uh, you could overthink design uh, crazy and, and, you know, you, you know, you'll never really know if it's the right way ultimately at the end of the day. So it's so true. All right. Last, sure. last question for you, Mirage. Um, advice to a 30 year old self, personal career, whatever. Uh, yeah. Uh, have try to always have fun at work. Uh, went through this stage that I was, hyper focused on getting to the top as fast as possible. And I really stopped having fun at work during that time. 
uh, it's totally contrary to who I am, how I think uh, work should be done. It's most of my life at work. So I might as well be enjoying it. But uh, yeah, that was a mistake that uh, it was actually around when I was like 30, 31 that I made. So uh, yeah, never again. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that and for answering all these great questions. So I think that's a wrap. So Mirage, thank you so much for coming on our show and sharing all the wisdom wisdom of yours uh, of experience with our audience. And uh, as always, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into the show supporting the show and following us. So Mirage, thank you so much. Thank you.